in Luke chapter 3, when the crowd was saying, well, what is this repentance supposed to look like? John was not afraid to give them some external signs or external things to do that would indicate repentance. Luke 3.10, the crowds are questioning him, saying, then what shall we do? That is, after their repentance, after their baptism, well, now how do we express this? He would answer and say to them, the man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And he who has food is to do likewise. Why? Because the changed heart recognizes the need of others, considers them more important than themselves, and for the purpose of honoring Christ, desires to give to them. Hello and welcome again to Grace Maryville Weekly, which is a podcast ministry of Grace Community Church located in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. The sermon you are about to hear is a part of a sermon series presented by Pastor Chris Reiser from the book of Matthew. Pastor Chris has sought to demonstrate that Jesus is the King, which is the overall theme of the book of Matthew. It is our goal to provide messages on Monday and Friday, weekly from the pulpit at Grace Community Church, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, and to call everyone to repent and believe. Let's listen now as Pastor Chris works exegetically through the text. Matthew 12, 34. And you already knew that, but Matthew 12, 34, this is what Jesus says, you brood of vipers. He gives them the exact same title. He says, you brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak what is good? So he makes it, he makes it clear. Calling them brood of vipers means you're evil. And in fact, then he talks about their speech where they are telling people that, you know, they should come to repentance and they should be like, you know, you should be like us. They're deceiving them in hypocrisy and their hearts are full of sin. Matthew 23, 33, you serpents, you brood of vipers. He gives them two names and that's probably the other connotation behind brood of vipers. They were serpents. The connection there is to whom? And this would have been very clear to the Jews of the day. The connection is to the bigger serpent, Satan. Thanks, Josh was going to answer my question. He knew that. That is, that is that they are being compared to children, because as brood of vipers, those who, those who are children of or offspring of vipers, well, what's the bigger viper that's, that's implied here? Satan himself. Can you imagine? Here's the self-righteous scribes and Pharisees, and Pharisees and Sadducees coming before all of the people with this big religious show. They got to show how repentant they are and that they, they continue to deserve to be leaders of the people. Look, we're going to, we're going to wash and be clean in this new way that's being presented here. And they come. John stops them on the banks and he says, you are dangerous. You are wicked and you are of the devil. That's what he tells them. You're like, wow, again, that, that seems pretty strong. Who would ever say a thing like that? That's not a very strong evangelistic message. I mean, that's not very seeker-sensitive at all. Nobody wants to hear that they are of their father, the devil, because aren't we all children of God? Doesn't God look down in favor upon all of us? And we're, we're all pretty much under his favor. We need a little bit, you know, we, I, okay, we sin, we get that. We need a little bit of help to be better, but God really is benevolently disposed towards us as his children. Is this not true? The answer is, it isn't true at all. John eight forty four. Again, this is Jesus. He looks and he's speaking specifically to the religious leaders. But remember, anyone that is not in Christ, right, is this. It says, you are of your father the devil. You want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. They're vipers. They're killers. Murderers from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. The primary castigation of the Pharisees was that they were hypocrites. They didn't tell the truth. And the Sadducees as well. 
Whenever he speaks, Jesus goes on to say, he speaks a lie, for he speaks from his own nature. He's a liar and the father of lies. What a great way to start a ministry right? with, the, with the religious leaders, with the ones who held the power. And you have to remember that. We will see all along the way that it is the leaders who are driving what happens to Jesus. And you, I, I, I tell you, they remember what they were told at the very beginning. They have never forgotten it. They will never forget it as they move through. Not only does John say this and, and, and exposes them in front of all the people, Jesus does exactly the same all the way through, and they hate it. And they hate him because he exposes them for who they truly are. And that's why we don't like the message of repentance, because it exposes us for who we truly are. And I'm not saying that you look at every person and say, you brood of vipers. That's not appropriate in every place and in, for every group of people. It was appropriate for the Pharisees and Sadducees. Notice that he did not say that to everyone who came. So I'm not saying that this is what we say to everyone all the time. Always we call on them to repent. And then the message right, of repentance is directed in specific ways towards the groups who are coming. Those that came, the tax collectors, it seems, and the prostitutes, and, and those who recognized their sin who were coming, John, as they came confessing their sin, he then baptizes them. Those who come not confessing their sin, and in this case, particularly the hypocritical political leaders and religious leaders, he exposes them for what they really are. Wicked, dangerous, deceitful children of the devil. And then he says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? I, I think we can only see this really as, as largely as sarcasm. Why are you coming to flee from the, the coming judgment, which they were well aware of, Right? Now, every Jew understood that there would be a punishment at the end of the age, but the vast majority of Jews were sure that that punishment would happen only to Gentiles. In fact, there was the rabbis had a, had a story that, that uh, there was someone, an angel, who would guard the gates of hell, and if any Jew came that way, say, no, you're not supposed to come that way, he would save them from that, you get to go there, and, and would deliver them from that. Only Gentiles ended up in hell, only those who were not of the, of the line of Abraham. And so this is, I believe, heavy sarcasm here. Who told you to come? Because clearly you don't believe that you need it. You're not confessing your sin. And he understood their, their and we'll see this in just a minute, he clearly understood their mindset. We don't need this because we're children of Abraham. We're already righteous. Who warned you to flee? So the, the first rebuke is that you're coming for the wrong reason. You're coming just to show the people that you're still in control. You're coming to do this external show, which is what they always did, of repentance. You're not actually confessing your sins at all. You're here for the wrong reason. But also, you are not truly repentant. Right? And, and really, I think the best we can see is that their driving motivation was to be seen by the people as embracing this new prophet that the people respected. And, and we'll, again, we'll hear that over and over when Jesus confronts the, the Pharisees and Sadducees about the, the ministry of John. He says, who is John? And they're very, very careful about what they say. So where was John's ministry from? And they go, well, we're not going to answer you because if we say that it was from God, then Jesus is going to say, well, why didn't you repent? And if we say, well, it wasn't from God, then the people are going to stone us because they loved John. So it's all, this is all for show. We'll, we'll look like we are good. But there's more than that, right? Their hearts are not truly repentant because what he says to them is, therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. What he's telling them is this, your actions in no way demonstrate that you have any internal change of heart. That's the issue. He's not saying somehow do a bunch of actions so that you can become repentant. 
Somehow work your way into repentance by cleaning yourself up. No, your actions clearly demonstrate that there is no repentance of heart whatsoever. So go do that first is what he's saying. Really what he's saying is repent first. You haven't repented so now go do fruit. Before you come here to be baptized by me, do some or have some fruit that shows that you have actually repented because it was so clear from their actions that repentance was the furthest thing from their hearts. And remember, that wouldn't have so much been their external actions, right? It would have been the things that they did in secret that John, by the power of the Spirit of God, knows and understands that Jesus clearly understood that so often the people didn't see. Because although it was their hearts that were evil, please understand that it was only externally that the Pharisees and Sadducees were righteous. There was all kinds of other ways when people weren't looking that they were pursuing their sin. Because sin always comes out. It's never only internal. And it always comes out. So he's saying, look, go do some or, or bear some fruit in keeping with true repentance. And this theme of fruit, will, we will see all the way through the book of Matthew. Jesus mentioned it in Matthew 7, 16. It says, you will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Again, it's not the fruit that determines what the tree is. It's the tree that determines what the fruit is. And if there is no fruit of repentance, the tree is bad. There has been no repentance, no changed heart. That's the whole point. And that's what he tells them. He's not saying go become righteous, prove yourself, because they'd already tried that and they already thought that's what they were like. He says, no, go bear true fruit, the fruit of a truly changed heart, one that confesses sin. That is, that would agree with God that we, before you and your standard, we are sinful. We have fallen short of your glory and we are in need of your salvation. Go do fruit that reflects that. True repentance always results in a changed life because that's its desire. And when the heart is changed, it desires to, to change its actions because the motivations are changed, the affections are changed, the intellect is changed. Remember, that's, that's true repentance. And so therefore, the, the actions are changed. Now, not perfectly or completely, but as a general pattern of life, that's what repentance brings. In Luke chapter 3, when the crowd was saying, well, what is this repentance supposed to look like? John was not afraid to give them some external signs or external things to do that would indicate repentance. Luke 3.10, the crowds are questioning him, saying, then what shall we do? That is, after their repentance, after their baptism, well, now how do we express this? He would answer and say to them, the man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And he who has food is to do likewise. Why? Because the changed heart recognizes the need of others, considers them more important than themselves, and for the purpose of honoring Christ, desires to give to them. And some of the tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? So it seems like there's these ongoing conversations. As John is baptizing, they're talking with him. Much more going on here even than Matthew directly tells us. So the, so the tax collectors are coming and go, Well, now what do we do? We're truly repentant, but how are we going to express that? So he says to them, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to. That seems pretty simple. Stop stealing from people. Stop taking extra on top, getting your cut on top, and then giving the rest what you're supposed to give to the Roman Empire. That's the reflection of a heart that's changed. Remember Zacchaeus? When he truly repents, what does he do? He says, not only am I going to stop stealing, I'm going to give back the what I have stolen. Why? Because that made him repent? Because that demonstrated his, or that, that proved him to be, that, that brought him true righteousness? No, it was a reflection of what had happened in his heart. To soldiers, there were soldiers coming apparently, fascinating, Roman soldiers coming to be baptized. And notice he doesn't say to them, brood of vipers. That's fascinating. Certainly the scribes and Pharisees would have been standing on the bank saying, all of these are brood of, all of these are wicked. 
people, not us. It's just exactly the opposite. He says to the soldiers, don't take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely. Be content with your wages because that's what soldiers did. Because they had power, they would then extort money from the people. Or they would set them up as soldiers. They would drag them into court, set them up for pay. Right? They would do this for other people. And then they would be paid for, for falsely condemning these, the people that they would drag into court because they had the power to do so. Again, true repentance, first of all, involves understanding and insight, intellectual awareness of the need for morals, for morals and spiritual cleansing and change. Secondly, it involves our affections. Right? We come to truly, to truly believe and, and feel the need that our mind knows to be true. And third, it involves appropriate actions that are result from a mind which knows and a heart that truly understands, that affectionately, that grasps the nature of sin against a holy God. True repentance, as we have said, and I'll just mention it again, is a gift from God. It's part of conversion. It's what happens when we truly believe the message that we are sinful, that God is righteous, that we are in need of his salvation. 2 Timothy 2.25, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, that they might come to their senses, a beautiful description of repentance, that they might come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil being captive by him to do his will. That's where every unbeliever is. They are children of the devil. They are influenced by Satan because he is the father of lies and the father of evil, and they do what he does and they say what he says. Every person apart from Christ. Again, that's not popular at the door when you're knocking on somebody's door. It's not popular of preaching these days. And it is how both John and as we will see, Jesus came. And, but again, it's a beautiful picture in one sense of what repentance really is. You come to your senses. Wait a minute. I'm under the captivity of Satan. Why would I stay there? I'm in his grasp. I need to change. That's repentance. Again, the key thing here before we move to the next point is that the unrighteous right, recognize their need for, for repentance. That is, those who truly recognize that they were not righteous before holy God, they recognize their need for repentance. But the righteous, and put that in quotes, that is, those who thought they were already good enough, they did not recognize this. Matthew 21, 31 puts this as clearly as it could possibly be. And again, in relationship, Jesus speaking again in relationship to the ministry of John the Baptist, and I cannot overemphasize how important this forerunner ministry is. It's much downplayed in preaching today. In in, Really, John's hardly mentioned these days. Why? Because his message was repentance, and people don't use that anymore. But nonetheless, here's what Jesus said in Matthew 21, 32. He's speaking directly to the Pharisees, condemning them for their refusal to repent. He says, for John came to you in the way of righteousness. He was preaching that you have to be righteous. That you, in order to enter into the kingdom. For John came to you in the way of righteousness. You did not believe him, but the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him. And you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterwards so as to believe him. They're standing on the banks watching all of these prostitutes and tax collectors who recognize their sinfulness come confessing their sins and being baptized. They didn't recognize it ahead of time, so they weren't coming to be baptized for repentance. And they didn't even change afterwards when all of these others come pouring out their hearts in repentance. They were so hard-hearted that even that didn't get them. And they said they just continued on in their hard-hearted self-righteousness. This is the world we live in. Even the repentance of others, the true repentance of others, does not drive the self-righteous heart towards repentance. It drives them to, to a, a condescending pity. That's for you. That little repent, that, that's for you. It's not for us because we're already righteous. 
He gives him a third rebuke. He says, you are wrongly trusting in your Jewish heritage. He says, you're here for the wrong reasons. You aren't repentant. You are not truly repentant. And then he says, you are wrongly trusting in your Jewish heritage. And here's where we get underneath what's really going on here. Why is John rebuking them so harshly? Well, again, their mindset, and he understands this, is that they don't need to repent at all. That there is no need whatsoever for them to actually have to become righteous to enter into the kingdom because they are already in the kingdom. Because he says, and do not suppose. It's like he dives right into their minds. Because as they're coming for repentance, what they're thinking in their heads, and this is just the scripture reveals this to us, we don't really need to repent because we're ethnic Jews and we're the religious leaders and we're going to get in. We're already in the kingdom. He says, don't suppose that you yourselves can say we have Abraham as our father. We, we are ethnic Jews. We have really, and, and it, was, it was believed that the ethnic Jews received essentially special grace from Abraham. And it was that Abrahamic grace that would provide for them, that would oversee their sinfulness, oversee these other things, and that's how they would get into the kingdom, really because they got it from Abraham as their father. This ethnic Judaism, the, the fact that they were ethnic Jews, with Abraham as the one who would really protect them from the wrath of God. He won't pour out his wrath upon us. Don't say that you have Abraham as your father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Saying you misunderstand how to get into the spiritual kingdom. You misunderstand how to get into the true kingdom of God, which is to be saved, which is the kingdom which keeps you from eternal hell, the kingdom which enables you to enter into a right personal relationship with God, true salvation. You misunderstand that kingdom. He's not denying that there is a physical kingdom, that there will be a physical kingdom, any of those things. He's not denying that being a Jew isn't important at all in any way, because as we will see in the rest of the New Testament, Jewishness remains an important part of what God will do. But when it comes to entering into the kingdom that Jesus was bringing, it is absolutely unimportant. And God is able to populate his own kingdom, and he is not restricted to his ethnic people to do so. That's what he's saying. Look, you, you think the only people that get in are ethnic Jews. And really, that's, you, know, you can become a proselyte, and maybe you would be able to get in, but if you're an ethnic Jew, you're for sure in. Because look, being a child of Abraham in, for salvation, for repentance of sin, and for eternal salvation and deliverance from the judgment that's coming, being an ethnic Jew means nothing in this case. Because I, or, or God, can raise up for himself children of Abraham. That is, in this understanding, in this context, those who repent of sin and believe in me. Those are his children, as it were. Those are the ones who enter into the kingdom. And God is the one who does that. It is God's work to do this. So don't cling to your ethnic heritage. Don't cling even to your self-righteousness as part of that ethnic heritage. Instead, you're going to have to get rid of your self-righteousness and your trusting in who you are, at, at, even at the ethnic level. You're going to have to enter in through repentance and faith. Because God himself will and can and does raise up the children, the offspring of Abraham that are his spiritual offspring. And again, we'll talk much about this as Galatians speaks. Galatians 3.27, for all of you were baptized into Christ Jesus. You've clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And that's a really important verse. Because it doesn't mean that there isn't male and female anymore, actually, and that maleness and femaleness mean, mean nothing. It doesn't mean that. It simply means when it comes to salvation, there is no distinction between male and female, between slave and free, between circumcised and uncircumcised. It's a hugely important verse to understand what God is doing in salvation 
and then in his ongoing work as he works forward working with his ethnic people and then working with the church, those who have trusted in Christ in this age. It says, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. The spiritual descendants of Abraham, it is God who ultimately produces those. It is God who brings them into his kingdom and clinging to an ethnic heritage, clinging to a, a, an upbringing in a Christian home clinging to a, a profession of faith, clinging to anything other than true repentance and faith is meaningless. What is necessary is to recognize your sin, to recognize the righteousness of judgment, and to flee from the wrath to come by trusting in Christ. Remember what Jesus says in Luke 19.40, a similar allusion here. When Jesus is entering in, into Jerusalem and they're crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the Pharisees say, make your people stop. That's blasphemy. They're calling you God, the Son of God. Make them stop. And Jesus says, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. It's a similar thing. I'll make the stones cry because I am the one ultimately who works in hearts. I am the one who makes a change in people. I bring people into my kingdom. You cannot hold on to your external significance and your own self-righteousness. You are wrongly trusting in your Jewish heritage. And then the, the fourth Rebuke as you will not be spared in the coming judgment. You will not be. You think that you will be. Why are you fleeing from the wrath to come? Because you think as children of Abraham, you will not receive that wrath. Something will keep you from it. And again, it is not in our country that people think they are children of Abraham and they won't have wrath. It's because they're sure they're good enough. They're sure that they will not ultimately be judged. Something is going to keep them from it. A misunderstanding of God and His holiness. A misunderstanding of how one actually gets saved. A misunderstanding of Jesus. All of the things that Satan does to cloud the minds and hearts of people, almost without exception, you talk to people today, and they are in the kingdom, whatever that might be. They will get into heaven. So in that sense, very similar. And Jesus says to the Pharisees, the axe is already at the root of the tree. You're done. You are finished if you do not repent. It's over. Let's read it. And this is the message of the herald. This is what he comes proclaiming initially. The Acts, verse 10, is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He's just said, perform fruit in keeping with repentance. You're going to have to repent or the axe is coming for you. And the picture is very vivid. It is What would happen is, a, is at the end of the growing season, the farmer would go through the fields and he would... Uh, and the, and the orchards and, and the vines he would go through. And anything that hadn't borne fruit or that was dead and had demonstrated itself not to be fruitful, he would take it and he would either prune it, cut it with the pruning shears, or he would take the axe and chop it down. And the picture is as though the axe is already drawn back with the bead. You know, you maybe did that first swing to make sure you're going to get right, you know, hit what you're supposed to. If you're chopping wood, that's what you do. That's what I do. I have to make my first swing and then I go to chop the wood and I still miss and, and throw the wood all over the place, right? But So you make that first kind of judging swing, and then the axe is back. He goes, that's where it is. In fact, it's in mid-swing. That's where you stand. The axe is swinging for the root of the tree. It's going to take you out. You're the tree. There's no fruit of repentance. It's coming for you. Judgment is upon you. Now, I'm not saying it's what, it's what John said. But the same is true for every unbeliever today. For every person who has not recognized the nature of their sin, the justice of a holy God to send them to eternal hell, that the wages of sin is in fact death and is not desired then to please that holy God by turning from sin and recognizing what he has provided for us in Christ. The axe is swinging. 
It's not like he's going to think about it and then at the end he'll try to make a decision. He'll balance it out a little bit. Well, are, are, you gonna, are you in or are you out? Have you done enough good deeds? Have you not? No, the ax is coming for the tree. You're the tree. There's no fruit. You're going to get cut down. And this is a message that will not be preached today. And people will not hear it today. It sounds too harsh. It sounds too strong. It's not at all harsh or strong because if you're the, or too strong, because if you're the tree that the axe is swinging for, don't you wish that someone would tell you that you are about to be cut down? In fact, you are in the process of being cut down. The only thing that separates you from that ultimate cutting down is God's grace to give you life and breath until the moment you die and it's over. Scripture over and over says that the wrath of God is upon us. Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We're under wrath now if you're not in Christ. Ephesians 2.1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Even as the rest, everyone is under the wrath of God who hasn't fled to Christ. And the axe is swinging. It is coming for you. And it is coming for your friends. It is coming for your neighbors. It is coming for the members of this country. It is coming for every person in every nation, everywhere in the world who has not repented of sin and trusted in Christ. How urgent are we about that? In in your jobs, in, in your workplaces, the ax is at the root of the tree for everyone there who has not actively repented of sin and trusted in Christ. Have you brought the message to them? Are you urging them to flee from the wrath that comes, from the ax that is laid? That's why we go out knocking on doors. There's another young man who knocked on the door, opened it up. His external appearance initially indicates to us that this is maybe not a man who's walking with Christ. You don't judge everything from an external appearance. So I asked him. He said, I'm the, you know, I'm the father of a pastor. I've been in churches all over the place. You know, I know this, I know this gospel. So I looked at him and I said, Are you living for Christ? Nothing. And so that nothing was a clear indication that his external appearance in this case matched up with his heart condition. He was not living for Christ. So I urged him, so we're here at the door, not just to tell you about a conference, not just to give you, to give you the truth of the gospel. Anyone who doesn't trust Christ is going to die and spend eternity in hell. You've heard the message. Matthew 7 says that many will say, Lord, Lord, on that day I knew you. I performed works in your name. Maybe I had a dad who was a pastor. But that will not save you. Eternal hell is your destiny. I don't know that it had much impact, but it didn't say much. But these are the kinds of things that must be said. We have to tell people this. Imagine someone standing in heaven, you standing next to them. I don't think this is how it's going to work, but imagine that for a moment. And they turn to you, you know, and you knew them. And, and God is sending them away to eternal hell, active punishment. That's next week. You think this gets better? It doesn't. It gets worse because we're going to move to the winnowing fork and the unquenchable fire. I mean, right now we've got the axe at the root of the tree. It just gets worse before it gets better. Can you imagine them looking at you and saying, you didn't tell me that the ax was at the root of the tree and now it's cut. You didn't tell me that the eternal fire was coming. You told me that God was a nice guy, that I could have a new family, that I, I could have a good job and I, I already had that so I didn't want you. Or I thought I could get that on my own so I didn't need you. You didn't tell me that the root, that, that the ax was at, at the root of my tree. Because we have to do this. We have to present this to people. John is loving these people to rebuke them in this way, and no more so the Pharisees and Sadducees. This is how they needed to hear this message. You brood of vipers. He wasn't being cruel. He wasn't being arrogant. 
He wasn't even overemphasizing the point. That's what they were. And so he reveals that to them so they might turn. But what Jesus says, you, you didn't even have enough guts to repent afterwards when you saw all these other people coming and we'd already exposed you. You would not respond even then. But we must tell them the truth. John 3.36 says, He who believes in the Son is eternal life. Is that not a wonderful thing? It is. But he who does not obey the Son, again, the indication of true eternal life, obedience to the Son, over and over in Scripture, but he who does not obey the Son, notice the contrast, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, he who does not obey the Son, that is, does not believe, those two are equated, he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. It is his present and permanent companion. It is intimately related to his life and who he is. Do you believe this this morning? I think you do. And yet, does it drive us in its urgency? Are we willing to expose this? Are we willing to recognize our own need of true repentance? Maybe you came for show when you first came. Maybe you came because someone else went down or, or you had an emotional appeal to go to the altar and pray a prayer. Maybe you did it because your family did it and because your friends in the youth group were doing it. Maybe that's why. Even if you didn't recognize it then, maybe you just recognized it now. I came for the wrong reason. I wasn't truly repentant. I came down because I wanted the good stuff. I wanted the Jesus who was with me forever. But I didn't want to recognize my own sinfulness. The Pharisees wanted the kingdom. Believe me, they wanted it. In fact, they were sure they had it. But they wouldn't recognize their sinfulness. So maybe you came for the wrong reason. Maybe you didn't truly repent. Maybe you were trusting in some and still are trusting in some external thing that will save you. It's not enough. The axe is at the root of your tree. It's coming it will chop you down. There is absolutely no escape because it's the God of the universe who swings the axe. Did you come for the right reason? And if you did, and if you recognize that, even sitting here this morning, thanking God that you came for the right reason, that you recognized your sin, that God's wrath was upon you, abiding upon you, that you had to flee from that wrath by repenting and believing, will you then cry out one in thankfulness to God for saving you, living a life of obedience to Him because you love Him so deeply for what He delivered you from? See, you forgot, you forget daily that the ax was at your, the root of your tree. It would have chopped you down with no partiality whatsoever. You forget that, and so you grow weak and lax in your Christian faith, and so do I. It's the kind of thing when you get up on Saturday morning, and I'm not saying that going door-to-door witnesses is the only thing that makes you spiritual, but it's the kind of thing that causes you to wake up on Saturday morning and go, you know what, I could go do that, but I just got other things to do. You forgot that the ax was at the root of your tree at one time, and that it's at the root of everyone else's. It's not only that, it's when you go out to the workplace and you have multiple opportunities to speak the name of Christ, and, and just something, it's just, you're going to be rejected. It's, it's fearful, and, and so you move past it. When you move to that point of obedience... When your parents ask you to do something and you really don't like it and they're restricting you from a certain thing, maybe a relationship or whatever, and, and you say, I'm not going to do that, I'm going to disobey. You've forgotten that at one time the axe of God's wrath was at the root of your tree. He would have chopped you down. He saved you. You should obey because you love him and are, and, and are so grateful for what he's done. Do you see it? Repentance and understanding of what was to come for you drives you to obedience and drives you to evangelism. And if you're not driven to those things, you've forgotten the wrath that was coming. You fled, you did, and that's a joyful thing. But you have taken it for granted, and you've taken advantage of it. We can't afford to do this. The herald of the king comes and says, the axe is at the root of the tree. You're going to be chopped down and thrown into the fire. We didn't even get there this morning. Would that drive us to one true repentance if you haven't really repented? 
for all these maybe similar reasons why the Pharisees and Sadducees wouldn't. And it's always the same. That's the same for all of us. We're not Pharisees and Sadducees, but we have the same heart attitude. But would you drive that, allow that to drive you to obedience, to, to trust, and then to, to pouring out that message and proclaiming it to the world so that they would not be chopped down because wrath is coming. Urge them to flee that they might know the truth of the Savior who does love them and who will be there for them as they repent and believe. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would grant us grace this morning to be challenged by this message. We need your grace for that. But I just confess that in my own heart, it is so easy to become apathetic about the great salvation that you have given to me. Even the repentance that you provided for me as I professed it and, and as I proclaimed it, as I recognized the need for it, yet your grace that I would do that, that I would be hear the message, that my heart would be stirred, my mind would be changed. Lord, help me and forgive me for taking that for granted and living then a life of apathy and obedience, a life of apathy and evangelism, a life of apathy and building the church. Lord, forgive me for that. And I pray that you would forgive us as a church for the places where that is true. And I pray for each one sitting here this morning that there might be a conviction brought in, in understanding of, of this wrath and an understanding of your acts that will soon chop down every tree that is not in you. And that we will be driven by this to, to tell a world they desperately need to know you and to live a life that demonstrates the reality of the great salvation you have given to us. In your precious name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us again on Grace Maryville Weekly. These messages are just a small collection of sermons that have been presented at Grace Community Church in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. If you would like to learn more about Grace Community Church, where Pastor Chris serves as an elder and pastor, please visit us online at gracemaryville.org. Again, that is gracemaryville.org. There, not only will you be able to find out more about the many ministries at Grace, but you will also be able to access a full audio archive of messages not only presented by Pastor Chris, but also messages presented to our women's ministry, youth ministry, and college-aged ministries, as well as the Sola and Essentials conferences hosted at Grace. We invite you to visit us online and we hope that you will join us again next time as Pastor Chris continues to exegetically work through the book of Matthew. Until then, remember that Jesus is the King, and the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ.